have been going through a series uh, on marriage and what the Bible has to say about that. We've looked uh, in the last few weeks, uh, we started off looking at God's design for marriage uh, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then we looked at, in Genesis 3, the fall and how that affected not just our marriages, but everything in all creation and all of our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship even with ourselves, is changed and made worse and marred and defaced uh, because of our rebellion against God. And, and from there on, we have started looking at the various problems because we're fallen people in a fallen world, uh, the various problems that we encounter in marriage because uh, we, we are sinners. We're, we're fallen. We're separated from God. Uh, and apart from Jesus, have no way into relationship with him, and, and we struggle in our relationships with one another. And the biggest problems that, uh, that people deal with, number one, is the issue of marriage roles, and we looked at that last week. If you, you, know, if you, if you do counseling with people, uh, how do you sort out uh, how you're going to make decisions who is going to be the leader? Who's going to be the follower? How is that going to work? Uh, who's going to be responsible ultimately? And we looked at that from Ephesians chapter 5 uh, last week. And next week, I just want to warn all of you parents now that the children have been dismissed. Next week, I will not be here. Uh, that's not the warning, though. Um, <laughs> for some of you, that might be encouragement. But... Um, uh, Next week, I will not be here, but Bill Allison will be here, and he'll be talking about marital intimacy and romance. And if you would um, like to have your children in here, that is your option, but we are going to expand Children's Church during the service next Sunday up through the sixth grade so that you parents have a, an option uh, on that. Um, I don't think Bill will be uh, R-rated or anything like that, but it might be PG-13, and you um, want to be aware of that so you can make wise choices for your kids. So uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about how to have a God-honoring fight uh, with your wife or your husband, and if that sounds a little oxymoronic, uh, it's purely intentional, um, but uh, this week we're going to be talking about how to communicate with one another. Uh, if you remember when you got married, why did you get married? It wasn't because you thought to yourself, hmm, she looks good, although that may have been the initial appeal. It wasn't because you thought, huh, there's a man who can fill out an insurance policy. Wow, <laughs> that's something. No, uh, you get, it wasn't because, I hope, that you sat down and you made a list of pros and cons on the relationship, and, well, the pros came out ahead, and so we got married. No, you got married because at some point you sat down with one another and you looked into each other's eyes and you talked. In fact, for most of us, when we talked, we talked for hours. Back in the days before cell phones, we, were, we ran out of money paying the phone bill, right? You went, if you're like Karen and I, you went for long walks around the university loop 
uh, looking into one another's eyes and looking at the stars and talking and being together. Karen and I's first date, we were out until 2.30 in the morning walking around the loop on campus just talking and having just this most wonderful conversation and feeling like, here is someone who gets me, who understands me, who knows who I'm able to share with and, and feel listened to and heard, right? And you think to yourself as you're doing that, man, I need about 50 or 60 years of this. And so you stand before God and your friends and your family and you make your pledge. But a lot of times over the course of a marriage, what winds up happening is, is that you lose the ability to talk. Or at least to talk to one another in a God-honoring fashion. And so today, we're going to look at this issue of communication and having godly communication with one another. Okay, So, uh, how do you talk to your spouse in a way that honors God? If you've got your Bible, uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 29 to 32 of Ephesians chapter 4, okay? This is what it says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, let me give you a little context, a little background. We've not, we're not going through Ephesians as a book, so normally if we were doing that, I'd give you this as context for the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is written to Christians in the city of Ephesus, which is one of the major ancient cities in the what is now modern-day Turkey. It's on, the, it's on the far western edge of what is now modern-day Turkey. You can still go there. You can still see the ruins of Ephesus, but it's not a major city anymore. Uh, but Ephesus was a center for ancient pagan worship. In fact, the goddess who was worshipped there was the goddess Artemis. Uh, she was the goddess of the moon and the hunt and virginity, and she was uh, worshipped with all kinds of, uh, of money and wealth and lots and lots of paganism that went, ar- went along with that. Her temple was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an incredible thing. And Paul goes to Ephesus, and he leads a whole bunch of these Gentile people to faith in Jesus Christ. And when he does, a whole lot of them have come out of this deeply pagan background. Worship of this wild goddess of the dark and the moon and the hunt. And when they come to Christ, they have had all of this paganism, all of this witchcraft they've been involved in, and they burn scrolls that are worth, uh, their, you know, this black magic books, essentially. Uh, but they burn these things that are worth 
50,000 days wages. Lots of money. Take a day's wages, whatever you earn, multiply it by 50,000. That's how much money this stuff was worth. But because they're committed to Christ, they burn this stuff and get it out of their life. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that you have the most extended discussion of spiritual warfare, of the conflict between, the, between God and his angels and the devil and his angels and the believer role in that in the book of Ephesians because of this pagan environment that these people are living in and having to live out their faith in Christ in. And, and so this book essentially is about how do I live as a Christian in a life that is filled not with the spirits, but with the Spirit of God. How do I do that? And one of the things that, that you have to consider is how does being filled with the Spirit affect how I talk to other people, okay? And so this applies whether you're married or single, whether you are a student or an adult. This applies because this is what Spirit-filled speech looks like, regardless of the context. And so obviously it applies in your marriage because... You're, in your marriage, ideally, you have this person that you love and care about and sacrifice for more than anybody else in the whole world, right? So, for sure, it fits in there. But it also applies within the, within the body of Christ, in the church, uh, in your workplace, everywhere that you as a Christian talk. To other people, this is how it's to be. So, in verses 29 and 30, Paul says to speak what is helpful. If I want to summarize that section, uh, speak what is helpful. He specifically, he says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The word that's translated unwholesome there is literally the word for rotten. You know, try to imagine... You know, driving along, you're driving along the road in the summertime, let's say it's August, and there is a roadkill, and you can't identify it yet, you haven't seen it, but you're aware of it, <laughs> right? How? Because you know that something smells dead. It is rotting out there along the side of the road. That is the idea. He says, don't let any words that look like that smells come out of your mouth. Uh, it, it refers, you know, a lot of people want to limit this to something like cussing. And certainly that applies. But it's a, it's a broader term than that. It includes any kind of vulgar speech or abusive language, or slander, or nasty comments, or talking behind somebody's back, or talking about someone else with contempt. Rotten speech. It includes cutting remarks that are cloaked in humor. I'm pretty good at those. Okay? Some of you maybe are too. It includes um, 
sharing as a prayer request some juicy bit of gossip that you have picked up. It's every type of speech that tears down people. Because look at it, it says, and it's an all-inclusive prohibition. In other words, this is not just a little bit of this is okay. It says this, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So the appropriate amount of unwholesome talk for a believer in Christ is zero, in other words. And Paul says that in contrast to that, and you can, you can put this in your Bible, write down contrast, all right? In contrast to that, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is the positive side of Paul's instruction. So, so it's not just that you need to be selective in, how, in what words you choose to share. You know, don't say these words, you know, like whatever the, is on the list uh, of don't say these. It's also being positively um, beneficial in what you do say. So it's not just that your words are not negative, but they're actively positive and that they're encouraging and compassionate and helpful to other people. Um, our choice of words needs to encourage people and be constructive rather than destructive. Uh, it, you know, if you want to watch destructive speech in action, uh, turn on one of the cable news programs, okay? And they'll put down... They'll put these people that are on this side of the argument and these people that are on this side of the argument, and they don't have the argument so much about the issue. They have argument about motive of the other person. And so that my opponent is not just wrong, he or she is evil, right? And they tear one another down. Paul says Christians aren't to do that. We're not to talk about people or to people in a way that tears them down, but rather in a way that builds them up. Uh, if we're going to live like we are the people in whom God's Holy Spirit dwells, then our speech is to be constructive and encouraging and helpful. Not to say that you never offer criticism, but you offer criticism in a way which is helpful rather than hurtful to the person. Um. It should set the standard for being a gift of grace to the people who hear it. There are people that I know in this church, I won't name them, but there are people I know in this church who are always like that. When I talk to them, they are just so encouraging and helpful and beneficial, and my day is made better for having encountered them. And I love that. It's reflective of the fact that the Holy Spirit is present in their life. Bottom line is that, is that rotten speech kills relationships. And it kills relationships whether it, you're talking workplace relationships, family relationships, church relationships. If you, whatever relationships you're in, if you make a practice of tearing other people down with your words, 
those words have an effect. You know, we all know this to be true, but, you know, what we used to say in grade school, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Actually, the reverse is true. A lot of times the damage that we do with our speech is much deeper, much longer lasting, much worse. Because what you break is not someone's arm, but their soul. When you talk to them in a way that tears them down. And within my own heart, I can still remember things that people have said to me that cut me to the bone. And I still have, I, I have to, I have to do like uh, Clara Barton uh, said one time. She said, somebody brought up something that somebody had said to her that was nasty, and she said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. <laughs> okay. And I have to do that sometimes with those kinds of things. Okay. But we as believers in Christ ought not be in the habit or even ever in the practice of saying the kinds of things that will do that to each other or to anybody. And you need to guard your tongue in the Lord. And if you're a married person, you know, sometimes I think we have this misconception about when we get married, we can just let our freak flag fly, you know, and we're, we're go- we can just say whatever is on our mind. Because after all, this person is, you know, they've promised to love, honor, and cherish me the rest of my life so I can pop off and not pay any consequences. No, that's not true. What you will do over the time, if you continually do that, is you will build yourself a wall between you and your spouse. And you will tear them down. And I have seen it. I've done enough marriage counseling at this point in my ministry after nine years that I have seen couples who were so in love when they got married, they can't any longer speak peacefully to one another. To have them in the same room is to have a screaming match in front of me. Now, you're fairly far gone when you can't talk in front of your pastor without yelling at each other. Okay, Most people have more of a filter than that. They're at least able to, you know, rein it in for public consumption, right? But I have seen it, and it happens. And it happens because we do not guard our tongue. Paul continues in verse 30, says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, there's a lot of good theology in those few words In fact, I could preach this entire service on just that verse. This is great stuff. But I want you to see this, okay? First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the triune God. You don't talk about making electricity sad. He's not a force. He's a person. But... The Holy Spirit is given to each person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, and he indwells them. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit is a deposit, 
guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. That God gives us himself in the Holy Spirit to guarantee us that he is going to redeem us. And the word he uses there is a word for like a, a pledge. And it can be used as it's like an engagement ring that a man gives to a woman. Why does he do that? Because he is saying, I am going to commit myself to you. And the day when you will experience the full gloriousness of all that can be possible in our relationship is yet to come. But I am giving you this as a sign, a symbol of a much greater reality that you're going to experience. Now, few of us men ever live up to that, all right? But Jesus does live up to the hype. You hear me? And he gives us the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, and it puts a mark on us. If we're truly a believer in Christ, that, you know, if you, if you, go, out, if you go out west, still to this day, farmers uh, and ranchers still brand their cattle, right? And you go out and you see, oh, there's the, that's the bar H, that's the rocking J, that's the whatever. It's, it's a way of, of saying, this steer is mine. And God does not do that. He doesn't get, you know, like a cosmic hot iron for our forehead, you know, belongs to Jesus, you know, or anything like that. But what he does instead is give us something internal, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us. And he, his presence ought to mark us as belonging to God. And when our life is not marked by the Holy Spirit's presence, it grieves the Holy Spirit within us. Where do you think our emotions come from? We're made in the image of God. Our emotions come from Him. And God, while He still loves us, is disappointed by our disobedience. Just as you as a parent, if you have a child who is rebellious, you are grieved in your heart that they are going the way they're going. God, when our speech does not live up to the fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is disappointed and grieved by that act because we are marked by the Holy Spirit and, and the marking ought to show through in how we talk. Okay? If your mouth produces rotten speech, it is because your heart has places that need to be changed from the inside by the Holy Spirit's presence within you. Uh, in verses 30 and 31, he goes on and he says, you also want to reject, you not only want to speak what is helpful, you want to reject what is sinful. And um, he gets specific about the kind of behavior that is grieving to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 31 here. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Now, this is, this is a, a climactic list. You start off at, at, the, at the bottom end and you go all the way up to the top. And if you look at it first, you, the first word there is bitterness, which is an inner resentful attitude toward a person. It's kind of a cultivated inner anger 
that's beginning to fester over a wrong that you've suffered. And, and a lot of times, this kind of rotten speech that you have towards somebody starts with this cultivated bitterness toward them, where you have fed this rather than forgiven them, and you have become bitter. And then you move up the chain a notch, and Paul says, get rid of rage and anger. And a lot of times, these two words are used as synonyms, but here in the text, they seem to refer to different things. And rage is kind of the outbursts of anger that you have, kind of the verbal snap. Why does that happen? Well, because you have cultivated bitterness. And when you cultivate bitterness long enough, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to have a moment where the opportunity comes to lash out, and you're going to. That's rage. And then he's, he talks about anger. And anger, on the other hand, is that when you fed your bitterness to the point that now you're having the outbursts, uh, it's now erupting in ways that you're no longer keeping it under wraps most of the time. You're mad, and you don't really care who knows. You're just mad. And you are like a steadily festering boil that's just always ready to erupt. And by the time you let bitterness get to this point, you're not even able to discuss the issue rationally anymore. Even to bring it up is to have an explosion. And, and on top of that, because you feel completely justified in what you're angry about, you don't even bother to cover it up anymore. Just angry. And I'm in sin, and I don't care because I'm justified being mad. Next on the list is brawling and slander. Uh, now, brawling doesn't just refer to being physically violent, although that is included too, uh, but it's a broader term that often is used in, in other places in Greek to refer to kind of just angry, violent shouting back and forth. It's where you're just screaming at one another. Again, this starts with bitterness, and it builds, builds, builds. It's when you're, and every now and then you see this, you know, like out on a football field or whatever. It's when you get to chest bumping and dirt kicking, all of the nastiness that goes along with that. Believe it or not, there are some married couples or even some people in some churches who get to doing this with each other. They're not to the point usually of rolling around on the ground slugging on each other, although I've seen that happen too. Okay, not in church, thank God. All right, <laughs> uh, or at least not in one that I've ever served in. Um, but this happens to people. Where they just let it go and let it go and let it go and let it go. And all of a sudden, it's a screaming, fighting, yelling, sometimes pushing, hitting match. 
between two people. And then after that, he says, slander. Slander is the, literally the word blasphemy that's there. It's the word for profane or abusive speech. It's when you've gone from screaming at each other to screaming profanity at each other, trying to tear the other person down and belittle them as much as possible. Again, I've seen this. I've seen couples and people who do this to each other. You're a this, you're a bleeping whatever, okay? Where did that come from? How did these people get from being at peace with one another and maybe even liking each other to the cussing, screaming, fighting, nastiness? Started with unresolved, unforgiven anger over something back here. Never got solved. Calling each other nasty names. Blasphemy is what it's called. And all of that is out of bounds for any person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. All of it. Every bit of it. From the bitterness at the one end to the blasphemy at the other. And, and Paul sums it all up with this word. Every form of malice, every kind of hatred and hateful speech is out. Can't have any of it. And then he's going to give us Positive instruction again, verse 32. If you're really obeying God, this is what kind of person you will be. Kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, being kind is a word that has to do with merciful treatment of other people. It's actually the quality that God is described, is described as in the Old Testament. This is the word that translates the Hebrew word hesed, which hesed is, is God's steadfast love. It's his fact that he is faithful when we are unfaithful, the fact that he loves us when we are sinful, that he treats us with mercy even though we don't deserve it. He's kind to us. And we're to be kind to one another and to sacrifice for each other the things that we would like to say and do were to treat each other instead with kindness, with grace, mercy. Paul says uh, also we should be compassionate to each other. Now, this is a great word. This is the word that it's the, it's, it literally says you splunknoi, okay? Your splunknoi are your guts, your intestines. And the word EU is the word for good. So you have good guts to each other. <laughs> All right? Um, and the idea is, in, in, in Greek thought, your intestines, not your heart, is the center for your emotions. And so when you have good guts toward each other, you are compassionate. Right? Um, it's, it's the idea of being tender-hearted. Uh, in fact, it's the word that that um, that is used when, Je when it says that Jesus saw the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion 
upon them. He was tender hearted toward them. It's being sympathetic to people's needs and to the fact that they are sinners like you. And a lot of times we tend to have a different standard. I don't know about you, but I at least tend to have a different standard for other people than I have for uh, myself, right? I want other people to behave this way, and if I behave this way, then, well, they just need to understand that this is how I am, this is how I think, this is how I talk, this is, this is just me, and they just need to accept that and go on with life, right? Now, no one else does that, I'm sure, but I do that. And we tend to have a different standard for other people than we have for ourselves. We have a low bar for ourselves, a high one for everybody else, and we, if they don't jump over it, then we get mad. But to be compassionate is to say, this person is a sinner like me. And I need to give them grace because they're a sinner like me. And I need to be understanding of the fact that they're a sinner like me and not treat them as their sins deserve. Leave that to God. But to treat them how I would like to actually be treated if I were in a similar spot. Um, And finally, Paul says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, we all know this, at least, at least intellectually, theologically, we affirm this, that apart from God's grace coming to us in Christ, we all deserve to go to hell, right? Every single one of us is going to hell on a rocket ship, working at going to hell, digging our way as fast as we can going to hell. And then God, in his great love, is boundless mercy sends Jesus Christ into the world to die on a cross for me and for you. And he forgives by the death of his son all of the stuff that we have done. The blood of Jesus covers over every bit of our sin. And he forgives us. And he forgives us not just for stuff we've done in the past, but for stuff we've done in the present, for stuff we will do in the future, he forgives us. And he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He covers over our sin. And when we confess to him, he never even brings it up again. Circle these words in your Bibles. Just as. In the same way that God forgives you in Jesus, you are to forgive other people. Forgive your spouse. Forgive your coworker, forgive your brother, your sister, your fellow church member, your boss, whomever. The person who cut in front of you on the highway, forgiving just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving. It's precisely this kind of forgiveness that we have to have. If your marriage is going to work, married people, going to have to have a big dose of this, forgiveness, kindness, compassion. Single people, if you're not a forgiving person, do us all a favor and don't get married, okay? I'm serious. That is not a joke. Do not get married if you can't forgive other people. 
you will make everyone around you and the person you married miserable. And you will be a miserable person if you can't forgive. Forgive just as God has forgiven you. And here's the thing. Forgiveness starts with an understanding of how much you have been forgiven. And when you really get a hold of that, of how much God has released you from, then you've got no problem forgiving other people. You know, Jesus says in one of his parables, he talks about a man who was forgiven a debt by his king, 10,000 talents. Uh, that works out to $8 billion in gold. Anybody ever been in debt that much? <laughs> okay. Uh, not even the worst subprime uh, borrower is, uh, is in debt for $8 billion, right? And it says that the king forgave the man, and then he went out and choked his, his fellow servant who owed him 50 bucks. king revoked forgiveness because he did not understand how much he had been forgiven of. And the scale was not remotely similar. Primarily, the person we sin against when we sin is God. And since he releases us from our sin, shouldn't we release others from the penalty of the sin they do against us? few quick uh, questions for application here. You know, a lot of times in a marriage especially, we treat our spouses the way we would never treat a coworker or a friend or, or some other family member. Certainly not our boss. We would never speak to anyone else the way that we sometimes speak to one another in our marriages. This applies to all of us, married or not. Here's the question. Number one, what kind of talk is coming out of your mouth? And what does that reveal about what's in your heart? Jesus said it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if there is rottenness and nastiness and unkindness and hatred and bitterness that's coming out of your mouth, and what does that say about your heart? If, on the other hand, there is love and compassion and kindness and grace, some says something very different about the condition of your heart. If it's the one, you need cleansing and forgiveness yourself so that you cease grieving the Holy Spirit within you. Number two, are, am I harboring any kind of bitterness, anger, malice, or unforgiveness in my heart? Is there anybody who has hurt me that I have refused to forgive? Is there any incident that even to think about it makes me angry? Any past hurt that I can't seem to stop thinking about? I need to extend forgiveness and release the captives, including myself. Number three, do I demonstrate kindness and compassion even to people who have hurt me? Do I give grace or do I treat people in accordance with what I think they deserve? 
Last one. How quickly do I forgive? And when I forgive, do I really forgive or do I just say the word? Awfully easy to do that. Just to say, well, I forgive you. You don't really mean it. What you mean is, I'm going to do the right thing outwardly, but inwardly I'm going to be angry about this for a while, and I may not get even today, but I'll get you special ops later. <laughs> okay. Do you really forgive, or do you just say the word? You forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, 